Dotnet Rocks, episode 1109, with guest Troy Hunt. Recorded Friday, February 20th, 2015. Hey, it's Dotnet Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell. Here we are again, brother. Doing a thing with the stuff. Doing that thing with the stuff. Yeah. Troy's here. I'm very excited to find out what uh, new things I should be scared of. <laughs> and and uh, we'll get to him in a minute. Uh, not much else to report here, my friend. I've been, uh, st- I'm still playing Kerbal Space Program, which is astonishing because it's been at least several weeks. That's the that game you have to have a PhD in astrophysics to play? Uh, I'm under- understanding orbital mechanics is useful. But I've gotten to a point in the tech tree now where I'm able, to, I've been built a lander craft that can refuel off of the moon uh, using a little aluminum rocket. And so I've been hopping it from location to location around the moon, refueling myself, doing some science, then flying to the next location. That must be so much fun. It's crazy. It's really nutty. And, and the best part of the game is when you screw up. So the first version of that I made wouldn't refuel properly. So I landed it on the moon, and then I couldn't refuel it, so it was just ba- abandoned there. So oh. I built the second version, and in, in the hour break we had between shows, I was able to fly the new one to the old one and refuel it. Hmm. Crazy. And uh, just a reminder, Music to Code By is done taking orders uh, uh, at mtcb.pwop.com. A lot of people that listen to the show and also that appear on this show are using it with great results. So people love it, it dude. It's awesome. Yeah, it's 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 a thing. Yeah. All right, let's uh, get going with better know framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? It really is a silly song. I'm sorry. You I'm still not bother use the word it. stupid. <laughs> I will not use the word stupid anymore. It's inane. A name. It's a name. It's a name. It's true. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago from when this uh, show uh, airs, the guy with the red polo shirt, Scott Goo. He, the uh, Gooinator. The Gooinator. He sent out a an, an update on Windows Azure. And there was some really cool stuff in there that I want to uh, highlight. Uh, Besides the really big news, like machine learning is general availability, uh, Hadoop 2.6 and general ability of Apache Storm support for Hadoop, uh, cluster scaling, all that crazy stuff. There was a really interesting feature called support for slot settings. Slot settings. Yeah, slot settings. And I didn't really know what it was, too, but then I read it. And so this is what it says. The Azure Websites service has always provided the ability to store application settings and connection strings as a part of your site's metadata. Those settings become available at runtime via environment variables. And if you use .NET, the standard configuration manager API, the feature has now been updated to work better with another website's feature, deployment slots. And deployment slots provide an easy way for you to safely deploy and test new releases of your web applications prior to swapping them live into production. Huh. So let's say you have a website called mysite.azurewebsites.net with a deployment slot at mysite-staging.azurewebsites.net. You can swap those slots at any given time with no downtime. Hmm. This provides a nice infrastructure for upgrading your website. Until now, when you swap the staging slot with a production site, all settings and connection strings would swap as well. 
Sometimes that's exactly what you want and it works great. But what if for testing purposes, your site uses a database and you explicitly want each slot to have its own database, for example, a production database and a testing database. Prior to this month's release, that would have been difficult to automate since the swap operation would move the staging connection string to the production site and vice versa. You'd have to do something unnatural, like going to the staging slot and manually updating the settings to the production values before performing the swap operation. I love how Goo calls that unnatural. (laughs) (laughs) That's not right. That's not. Don't do that. Don't do that. Then you would execute the swap and finally manually update the staging settings to point to the staging database. That workflow is very complicated and error prone. Yep. So there you go. I thought that was really cool and interesting, and I didn't know about it, so... Thanks, Scott. Yeah, awesome. You know, the art of doing multi-stage deploys is not a trivial thing. We write big, long scripts to make those things happen, and you want it to be repeatable. Yep. All right, man, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1051, the one we did with one Troy Hunt, and we talked about the security in IoT. And there's a comment here. It's a bit of a beast, but uh, Troy even commented on the comment saying, this comment is awesome. <laughs> and it's from Andy Robinson, who says, hey, guys, I love the show. At the beginning of the show, you talked about a factory floor and IoT. I've been in the automation space for about 15 years. While I don't want to sound like that and be an old crotchety fart, there isn't much new under the sun with respect to IoT and factory floor automation. We've been collecting plant floor data by the bucketful for years and yeah. years. Process historians storing time series data in real time are the original big data storage repos. Yeah. Problem is that, in general, our industry sucks as marketing and PR. So now Google and Intel descend on our space and want to show us how it's done. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. There is huge value in some of the new tools, especially for post-storage analytics, visualization, and so on. Yeah. But the concept that they collect some data, analyze it, and save a few bucks is pretty mundane stuff. Well, except for the fact that they're doing it on an enormous scale. Well, factories have been doing it at a pretty enormous scale. I did a bunch of work for Corning years ago, yeah. where we were, and even Dow Chemical, where we're, you know... That's how factories work. Right. We were doing that in the VB6 era, where you have to do the very analog thing of, it doesn't always take the same number of seconds for this valve to close. Mm. How do you actually know it's closed without mm-hmm. breaking anything? Mm. Then I'm going to pick that back up again. Uh, but the concept that they collect some data, analyze it, save a few bucks is pretty mundane stuff. And there I go, sounding like an old fart. And then Google's blitz a while back with how they would start up and shut down chillers and other utilities and data centers based on demands is Utilities 201. Mm. Yep. Not quite the most basic, but pretty low end. Now, if they want to add predictive analytics, considering weather and anticipating load because Brazil and Germany are about to start the World Cup match, then that's a little better. And I thought it was more of a marketing PR point to say that Mitsubishi C Gateway used an Intel chip, which absolutely was. Mm -hmm. Intel's about selling chips. And another discussion on the connectivity on the factory floor. Yes, many years ago, the primary way to connect proprietary protocols was serial. These days, about 99% of the factory floor controllers talk over TCP IP. Tons of I.O. talks TCP IP. The protocol may still be proprietary, but at least we can use off-the-shelf Ethernet media and switching to tie everything together. The problem with off-the-shelf Ethernet comes that we need deterministic communications with our I.O. You need to know exactly how long stuff's going to take. Right. In the IT space, outside of storage networks and high-frequency trading, variable latency isn't a big deal. In the high-speed process control of additional 5 to 10 milliseconds of latency and every 3 or 4 seconds can actually destroy a machine. I've seen this problem in an oil refinery where literally it would blow up the pipe if you couldn't react in under 5 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. In the IT space, you slow down and people get mad. On the factory floor, you break stuff. 
That's not to say that there aren't huge opportunities in continuing to roll out TCP IP networks on the floor. Modern tech like Wi-Fi can certainly be used things like client connectivity and read-only monitoring, and I'm doing lots of that, and things are getting better all the time, but it's a big jump from IT to OT. Right. Also, there is always a persistent threat of unwanted guests. All you need to do is see Stuxnet, or more recently, Havex. Those are the viruses that actually take control of process control hardware and destroy things, right? Stuxnet would make those uranium centrifuges spin out of control until they exploded Mm. while showing the gauges in normal condition the whole time. Hmm. For a very, very long time, our systems used, used proprietary protocols, and we were never worried about people hacking because they were proprietary serial protocols, right? And besides, we're in a waste treatment plant. What do you want there? Yeah. Times have changed, and real attacks against real processes are common in our landscape these days. And unfortunately, while some people have applied a nice hard outer shell in the form of firewalls, most of our networks are still quite gooey. See, hard, gooey. <laughs> in the middle. See what I did there? Yes. He's talking about about, uh, security in depth. And this is a recipe of disaster, which we have already seen. There are a few people working on ways to make this better, but on the factory floor, we flipped the classic priorities for securing our systems. In IT, it's CIA, which is Confidentiality, Integrity, and Availability. And on the floor, it's AIC, so Availability, Integrity, Confidentiality. Just the opposite in terms of priority. There are some guys over at Besser.io trying to move the needle on this, and I truly hope they succeed Keep up the fabulous work, and I'll remain a loyal listener. All right, Troy, you want to read your reply now? <laughs> His reply is, <laughs> that, this comment is awesome! awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I think what's awesome about it is that this is just another side that most of us don't get to see, don't get to think about. I've spent 20 years building web apps, but I've never had to deal with the pressure on an oil pipeline or, yeah. or something like that. Right. I, I got a chance to work with a division of GE that does the instrumentation on turbines. And so they're measuring the vibration in turbines at something like a thousand times a second. Like the stream of data was, you, you can't even get your head around how much data we're talking about. And when you were wrong, million dollar turbines exploded and people died. Wow. So, you know, the... the, the Don't write bugs. I like those guys. Like they're added, they're a little calmer. Anybody who can live in that world just has sort of a mindset about stuff. And yeah. when you talk about software having not lived like that, they just sort of look at you like, I have a different class of problem. Right. <laughs> and that would be the polite way to say it. And it wasn't until I actually looked at the gigs per minute of data they were producing, I'm like, okay, you have a different class of problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Andy. Awesome comment. Thank you so much for sending it. We really enjoyed it and uh, certainly makes us think more broadly about what IoT security and all these things really mean. Right. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, Windows 8, and Android. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest online technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of professional developer, IT admin, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts and still offer a 10-day free trial for 200 minutes. Pluralsight has nearly 100 courses on security, including wireless security and VNext, as well as a series on the CompTIA Security Plus, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> Maybe Troy will tell us. <laughs> Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. 
And that brings me to Troy. Let me officially introduce him. Troy Hunt is a software architect and Microsoft MVP for developer security. Troy has spent the last 16 years building web applications and currently oversees software architecture for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals Emerging Markets. He blogs regularly about security principles in software development at troyhunt.com and is the author of the OWASP, O-W-A-S-P, Top 10 for .NET Developers series, and recently the free ebook of the same name. Troy is also the creator of Asafa Web, A-S-A-F-A-W-E-B, the automated security analyzer for ASP.NET websites at asafaweb.com. Welcome back, Troy. <laughs> G'day, guys. Hey, that's a really old intro now. That's uh, it is. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to make several amendments to that. But All right. uh, what, well, what I'll, things? I'll, I'll what do thing? that. I... No, no, no. What things are new? Well, uh, there's a few things. So uh, one or two things I, I can't say just yet, but I might blog okay. about those a little bit later. Uh, and and I just realised it's uh, it's now 20 years of building for the web because this is now 2015, and yeah. I remember starting. In fact, I still have my HTML for Dummies book from 1995, mm-hmm. which <laughs> <Yeah>. is <laughs> when I kicked off. Uh, and that is one of the few tech books I'm going to keep because that has personal significance. <laughs> yeah, I was I was doing it for. Uh, in 1993, 94, somewhere in there. That's when I got introduced to all that. So, yeah, crazy, isn't it? 20 it years, is. crazy. And we're, yep. we're still writing angle brackets. Yeah. Still using angle brackets. And I just got a bunch of congrats emails from various folks because LinkedIn noted that I just passed the 10-year mark of doing .NET Rocks. Oh, isn't wow. that nice? Thanks, <laughs> thanks LinkedIn. <laughs> thanks, LinkedIn. Okay. <laughs> I know about you guys, but LinkedIn seems to be more and more irrelevant these days. I don't know what it is, if it's just me that I'm not leaning on it or but you know, they're trying to be all Facebooky and stuff. And yeah. really it's It's all right. I find Facebook pretty irrelevant too. Well, sure, but you know, people <laughs> use that for social media, whereas I never thought of LinkedIn as a social media. It's not something where you would post, you know, hey, I'm going to go have a beer. Come join me, you know. Yeah, I've always thought of it as a, as a digital resume. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, and a way to connect with other people when you're looking for a job or looking to move, yeah. It's the endorsements that get me, and I, I think it's because they make it so easy. You click on this button because Troy Hunt knows SOA. And I've right. got, you know, I've got relatives who have no idea what SOA is. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, they're still yeah, clicking on this. the button. Yeah. Click on the button. Give the guy a break. <laughs> yeah, just just click the button. <laughs> What's going go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the beginning of security, isn't it? Just click the button. I mean, that's what got in, <laughs> us into this big mess. Of, that's why you have a job, Troy. Just click the I, button. It keeps you busy. Don't worry about those warnings. I just stop yeah. you from doing stuff. That's right. So buried in warnings. I yeah, want to talk about account noise. management. So. Really? Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. We're we talking about we single sign on? Are we just talking about encrypting passwords? What does it mean to have secure accounts? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Look, it's it's interesting because account management covers a whole lot of different areas. And what I like about it is this is not just a technology problem. There's sort of some social and some logic issues going on here as well. Uh, and this goes back to a course I did recently around secure uh, account management fundamentals on Pluralsight. And I break it down into a, a bunch of different categories. And it's, it's stuff like one of the things that, that's quite interesting is enumeration. So often we will see breaches and it will be Dropbox has been breached or iCloud has been breached. And right. we know it's been breached because here's the usernames and passwords. 
And you look at it and you go, wow, I, th these are actually correct. Some of these usernames and passwords are right. Now, does that mean that whoever it may be, Dropbox, iCloud, the rest of them, have had their credentials exposed from the database and did they not store them properly cryptographically? Right. Or does it just mean someone has got a great big list of usernames and passwords, and trust me, they're easy to get, yes. and they've gone through and they've checked which ones work? And sometimes it's not even a full set of creds. Sometimes it is just email addresses. Right. And there's this interesting thing around enumeration, right? So the ability to test an account, does it work? Yes, then put it in column A or no, then we, we discard it, whack it in column B. Mm. And it's, it's interesting because when you log on, you know, we're taught, hey, don't tell someone that the username was incorrect or that the password was incorrect. Tell them that the credentials or the username or password was incorrect. So, yeah. you know, let's, let's protect that. And I think most websites do that reasonably well. Yes. And then you go to the password reset page and you put in an email address that doesn't exist and it tells you this email address does not exist. Right. right. Therefore, disclosing the ones that do exist. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so much Job for done. that. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So you just take a great big list and things like, you know, there's good lists like the Adobe breach, the 152 million accounts from a couple of years ago. You just take that and you start enumerating through and you see which ones get a hit. So that makes it really easy to build up lists of who is on a site or who is not and then put it on Pastebin and say that you've hacked them. It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the error message for logging in should just be standard. It should just be, are you smoking crack? <laughs> but I, I think with the email thing, you should always say the same thing then, right? Just, okay, we'll send you your credentials. Right. And then yeah. black box it if you don't. So that's the trick. It's a question of, of what is the response. And really what we're saying is, is what you said, Richard, let's just give them the same response. Mm. So whether you have an account or don't have an account, let's just say we've sent you an email with the next steps in order to reset your password. Yeah, and and right. really that's, that's you, what you've got to do. Right. If you didn't get the email, it's because you didn't type it right or some other problem. Or the credential wasn't true. Right. But it, 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 I mean, it's a bit of it. I have absolutely right in the situation where I'm like, I don't remember what account I logged in with this thing with. Yeah. So, and I'll send it, I'll give it an email address. Oh, I don't have that one. Okay. How about this one? How about this one? Oh, there's the one I've got. Right. So it would be, I mean, what it would mean now for me would be just try all your emails. Yeah. And, and this is, a uh, you know, one thing to be cautious of as well is that you, you can't just not send an email if the account doesn't exist because, like Richard said, you, you get a bunch of addresses, right, and you can't remember which one you used. Right. Now, if you put in an address and it says, look, we've sent you an email, and then it doesn't send you anything and you were legitimately trying to retrieve your account, yep. then there's a bit of a UX issue there as well. So one of the, the common patterns which works really well is that you've basically got two email templates. One of them says, look, you tried to reset the password for this account, but you don't actually have an account under this email address. Right. And the other one is the reset process. There's a few sites that actually do that really good. Um, uh, EntroPay is uh, sort of the virtual credit cards do that really well. Mm. They give you the same message on the website, and then they send you a different email depending on whether you have an account or not. Nice. Yeah, because now, now if somebody's looking to see if you're on there, you're going to get a message that says, hey, somebody was just trying to log in with your email address. Yeah, and I guess the other well, part of that message is, if you didn't request this, click here. Yep, and I get those from time to time, especially yeah. from banks and things like that. 
So what one of the things that that then leads into is, all right, so you've got the login right. The login says either the username or password is incorrect. And then you get the reset right, which says, okay, we're going to send you an email. Yeah. The question now in terms of enumeration is what about the registration? Because usually you don't want people registering with the same email address, right? Mm. Right. So what do you tell them? And what often happens is you try to submit a registration form with an email address that already exists and it says, hey, that email address already exists. Okay, now there we go again. <laughs> so so now, we've, now we're doing the disclosure thing again. So now that, that sounds like then, a trickier one to deal with. Well, yes and no because it's – and this is interesting because I think this starts to get into this sort of usability versus security kind of, of, of construct. And really, the, the overall paradigm is the same. You've got to give the same response whether the account exists or not because as soon as you give a different response, that's when you can start enumerating. So the response has to be along the lines of, thank you for registering, we've sent you an email. And then you can use that email channel to either say, okay, you're now set up and you know this is the, the, the link and keep this as a reminder if you like. Don't send the password in it, guys, as well. <laughs> don't do <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> it's not an excuse to do that. And then the other email says, look, you've already got an account. Now, of course, some people will say, all right, well, look, that's kind of crappy in so far as for people that already have an account, that's not a very positive experience. But you've got to look at the ratio as well, right? Uh, I mean, that's going to be a very small percentage of registrations where someone says, hey, I'm going to go and register on this site. That I've already registered on before. Right. And you then have to trade off a little bit and say, okay, well, for that small percentage of the audience, it's going to be a little bit inconvenient. But for the masses, they're going to get the security of not having their account discoverable. Right, And for, th for those ones that are brand new as well, you can use that as verification. So that can be the channel to verify that the email address is actually correct and the person who signed up actually wants to be signed up. Yeah. Well, and why wouldn't you start that right at the beginning too? First thing is give us an email address. We'll send you an email with how to finish registration. So you don't actually put any more work in than necessary. So you send the email address. The next step is in the email. And that does the confirmation. You've minimized your effort. The confirmation might come back of, hey, you've already got an account here. If you've lost these credentials, click here. We'll take you down that path. And if you don't, then it's like, great. You know, that's a fine email address. Let's start your registration process. You could do that as well. I think the marketing and the UX gurus would say, oh, but then we can't collect as much information up front and you might have a higher dropout rate. So, so one of the things I actually do, so I've got this service called Have I Been Pwned, the one where you can search for, for if your email address has been caught up in breaches and things. Mm. Right. And I've got a reg registration facility there, only in so far as give me an email address, then I'll send you an email if you appear in a, a subsequent breach. Right. And what I do is I say, look, just give me the email. Uh, I'm going to store your account. I'm going to send you a verification email to make sure that you are who you are. And then if they don't actually click that, so maybe it's been caught up in spam or something like that, three days later, I'll send a follow-up email and say, hey, you didn't actually click the verification email. I format a little bit differently. I do a couple of other things to try and spam optimize just to try and get through that second time. Right. So it gives you that ability. And I think if you collect a little bit more data up front, then at least you've got a profile on the individual. You've got other opportunities to engage with them later on if they haven't immediately verified their address. I um my my uh, mail system that I route through a company called MailRoute because I have I registered gu.com in like 1996. So it gets somewhere between 5 and 10 spam million spam email a month. So yeah, it's it's like a try like anybody who thinks they can handle spam is like, "Are you sure?" 
Let me give you an email address. <laughs> like, and so it's just a, it's such an old domain. It's uh. on every spammer's list. So when MailRoute was brand new, and I got they reached out to me, and I'm like, "Are you you think you can handle? It? You sure? You really sure? Okay, just take this domain." And, it, and 15 minutes later, the guy calls me, goes, "Wow, that's that's really, that's really something." But they've got such a clever system. It's it, uh, where the part of the mail protocol is mail server busy. Please resend in X minutes. And real, almost every real mail server in the world, pretty much all real, real mail servers in the world, will respond to that. Yeah, it's a normal response. Spammer, mm. Spam bots don't respond to that. So, And what it actually does is just delay the mail for five minutes. So the first time you send me an email, that combination of your mail to my mail, it makes it wait five minutes. And But it doesn't actually force you right five minutes. So if I really want your mail right away, I tell you, send me another one. Mm. As soon as the second one comes through, yeah, now it's fine. It goes through. Huh. It's just, you know, no mail protocol stuff, right? But uh, it's exactly that kind of thing. If you resend something new, you have a better chance of getting through. Very interesting. Hmm. I know way more about mail protocols than I ever really wanted to know. <laughs> but on the other hand, all I have to do is redirect gu.com to the, the, the MX record of gu.com to any site, and I am my own DDoS attack. <laughs> I actually realized how much I don't know about mail when I was trying to do the spam optimization for that service and looking at all of the semantics of the way the message is configured. And if you don't have enough content in there, it's spam. And if you have the wrong images or unique IDs in there, it's spam. And I just blew days and days and days trying to optimize this thing to get to get it right and i still only get i think i'm running at about 77 percent of the registrations that sign up actually then verify the email address so there's a lot in there which either don't get the mail or were not intended to be signed up or they've just signed up someone who didn't want it yeah it's 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 and this is all because mail protocol is so crappy that we've built this incredible layer of filtering but you know what i mean we we trust two things we trust that emails are going to only go to you and we trust that uh text messages are only going to go to you and so the the two-factor authentication you know works because if you because of that trust but i mean those are are those things that we can count on troy no <laughs> I mean, this, this is the problem and, and particularly I mean, I'm not as familiar with SMS and the way these telcos work, but certainly when we talk about routing email and we're dependent on things like DNS, I mean, how many times have we seen DNS hijacked or poisoned or other risks at that sort of transport layer in the network right. where things are routed to locations where they're just simply not meant to be? Yeah. And and to that effect, and it's, it's interesting talking about the amount of spam you're getting, Richard, hearing some people who own domains that are very similar to some of the biggies, to your gmail.com or outlook.com, the number of legitimate business emails they get that go there with private and confidential information yes. that someone has simply mistyped the URL. I mean, how is this a thing? <laughs> yeah. Know, this is crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and there are folks out there that are deliberately buying the domain names that are common misspellings. Yep. Like, that's a business all by itself. Try every misspelling of Google you've ever heard of or ever mm. could think of. Somebody already owns that domain. Yeah, it's out there, and there's an ad on it, <laughs> or <laughs> malware, or something like that. Yeah, yep. or, or or a Google login page. Yeah, it's just a constant process all the time. Uh, and I love the how have I been pwned uh, site. I was a Stratfor subscriber when uh, Anonymous did the breach. I know, and, yeah. <laughs> and I thought Stratfor. I mean, Stratfor was down for months. 
they really went a great lengths to try and fix it. I appreciated how they handled it. Obviously, they weren't as secure as they thought they were, and, and surprise, lots of people aren't. Uh, but the um, they bought every subscriber a, a tracking service for any exploits. They, 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 went, they did do a lot. And, uh, and I appreciate yeah. that. I'm still a subscriber. And that, that seems to be the, the, the general path of the course now, isn't it? Uh, your data has been owned on our system, so we're going to get you some identity theft. Unfortunately, because you reused all your credentials, uh, that also opens up the other systems that, uh, yes. that you had accounts on. But, we um, can help you with that. And I, and we'll, try, we'll try and help you for a year. <laughs> and for the yeah. record, you know, I'm a LastPass user, which means I have randomly generated 15 to 20 character passwords that I simply don't know. Right. Yeah. Like you can't wrench a password out of me. I don't know it. This is the joy of it as well, isn't it? You know, when you go to a password manager and you just simply do not think about it anymore. Nope. But one one of the interesting things that I talk about with account management as well is that there are some really screwy things going on with the way websites will let you enter passwords. So one of the things that that drives me nuts, I think it drives most people nuts is websites that deliberately disable the ability to paste a password into the password field. Yeah. Right. So, so this is kind of nuts. I wrote this blog post on it last year, and I called it the Cobra Effect. And that this, is a, this is a known thing, the Cobra Effect. And the, apparently the theory was back in sort of colonial times in India, and yet you had the British there, and the British went, look, there's, there's too many Cobras around. So what we'll do is we'll pay people every time they bring a cobra in so the locals went hey how good is this let's start breeding cobras <laughs> so they started breeding these cobras and then they bring them in and the british went wow this is good we're getting a good kill rate here and then they figure out what's going on so they went okay no more money that's it so what happens to the locals with a truckload of cobras that they can't get any money for they let them go <laughs> <laughs> so the yeah. problem gets worse and worse. So it's you know the, the whole idea of this cobra effect is it's an unintended or opposite consequence to a control. And in this case, when you do this, when you say you cannot paste a password into this field, now you can no longer use your password manager. And in some cases, the password manager can still inject it into the DOM. And so long as the site isn't actually looking for keystrokes and things like that, you may get around it. But even today, you know, I saw a message on Twitter and this organization said, and I think it was a, a bank in the Netherlands, that said, uh, well, you, you can't do it because security. Well, hang on. What do you mean because security? <laughs> so it's it is a very very strange thing. In fact, even PayPal do it on uh, on the change password uh, form. You can't paste in. You can do it on the login, but I think what they're worried about is someone sort of types it into one field, copies it, pastes it into another field. They've made a typo, but it can just totally screw up password managers, which had my random crazy thirty character password in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it, exactly that. It's just, and, you know, I like, the other one that's always interesting is running into how short, like, most people are typing short passwords, so they don't even aware of what the actual limit is, but I just hit a Microsoft set the other day that was limited to 16 characters. I'm yeah, like, this really? one keeps coming around, around, around again. So apparently it's been 16 since, like, forever, uh, except they had max lengths of, like, 20 or 30, but <laughs> it would save 16. So you could get the first 16 right, and then after that, it, you know, who knows? It didn't matter. Yeah. And, and, I mean, this is a funny thing. So we're, we're, I guess there's issues about min limits and issues about max limits as well. And having a low max limit, arguably, mathematically, is going to decrease the range of different possible passwords you can have. 
Now, Microsoft does get hammered on it a lot, and because of, of my MVP status, people seem to like hammering me a lot on it as well, as if I can influence <laughs> them. Uh, and, and they're right. The, the people that are, that are complaining about it, it, it should be longer. And Microsoft inevitably says, look, we've got various other security controls in place, and I'm sure they do, and I probably feel a lot more comfortable with 16 characters on Microsoft than an unlimited amount on most other services. Yeah. But it's just a, it is a low arbitrary limit. And, of course, what people say then is, is it 16 because you've got a Varchar 16 in your database <laughs> and, you're not, and you're not hashing it and you're not, you know, like, what is it? What is right. it? And, and I imagine that because all of this does go back a long time, they probably had systems in place at some point which had some arbitrary limit for some reason and that has carried through into the modern day and everything is now sort of artificially limited to 16, which is, which is unfortunate and I hope they just get it sorted out. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is now? I must be that happy time. You got it. It's time for me to reset my password on neverresetyourpasswordsagain.com. That's a good idea. You ever been there? No. I bet you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first... Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant.NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com. Slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Ariel De La Fuente. Ah, congratulations, Ariel. Yep. Golf clap for you, sir. Or ma'am. Or ma'am. We don't know. We don't know. Doesn't matter. Uh, and Ariel just won a uh, DevExpress D Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from them. And uh, you know that I did verify that that is Mark Miller. That uh, round-headed guy that looks like he's streaking, you know? Yeah. yeah. Of course it was. Yeah. He goes, yeah, that's me. The only other person with a head that big is me. <laughs> and I keep hair on mine. <laughs> Literally, you have a huge head physically. I've never seen anyone with such a big head. But... Uh, Goes with my big neck. Yeah. So uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away five grand worth of stuff, technology, to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. We've done it three years in a row, man. Indeed. That's crazy. And uh, Troy, it's your turn. If it's time to go shopping and you've got a $5,000 blank check, what would you buy? So I've, I've come up with something and you guys are going to say, look, that's, that's not five grand. But keep in mind, you're going to have to buy one of these every year. Okay. And that's an, that is an Apple Watch. And you're going to oh, have to no. buy it every year because every year you're going to look at it and go, what is this piece of crap? Look at this new thing that just launched. But as much as that will be the case, I do want one of those things. Uh, And the reason why is because I think it's it really is that the point at which the scales are going to tip and make wearables practical. I think we're going to see a lot of stuff come out that we've never thought about before. Yeah. And Apple, uh, love them or hate them, does have a way of making these things successful. And I am enormously curious as to the things that you can do with that. 
Uh, I will not be sending my heartbeat to my wife, uh, no. <laughs> but I will. <laughs> I will be doing many other wonderful things with it, and I'm actually pretty looking forward to that thing. Well, and it, I thought the base watch was like five hundred bucks, and then there was going to be like a sport watch that's somewhere around a thousand dollars. But the luxury watch, the gold watch, uh, John Gruber was just wrote about this. He's talking; it's going to be ten grand. Yeah, and yeah. you know and. Real, you know, real gold watches are more than that. They're they're twenty thousand plus. They're also lifetime watches. You buy it once, exactly. forever. And this is the funny thing about it. It's almost a little bit like the whole IoT thing when you look at something like a white good, which you expect to get you know seven or ten years out of, and then you put right. these electronics in it. Which I mean, let's let's be generous. You know, if you keep a phone for maybe three years, that would be a very old phone. Mm. Yes, by any reasonable stretch of the imagination. Yeah, let alone a first generation wearable. Look, I'm going to flick that thing in a year. There's, there's no doubt about it. And mind you, the way Apple things hold their value, I'll probably get a good bit of money back from it as well. But it is going to be a, a, a highly cycled sort of device. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I've, there is a, some ecosystem around used iPhones, but I bet there'll be a huge ecosystem around used Apple Watches. Yeah, and think back to, as well. Think about like first gen iPhone. Like, how quickly did that change over the first few generations? Well, massively. It, it, it was just massive. And then, of course, everyone started complaining that the subsequent generations haven't changed fast enough. But I think we're going to see the same sort of thing with the wearables. And as cool as it looks at the moment, we're going to look at that in 12 months' time. And, again, we're just going to go, what a what piece of crap. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I, but I also wonder if they're going to sit this one out. Uh, the, the consumer will. I'll, I'll wait for the second generation, the third generation. I mean, this happened you know, back in the old days with uh, Japanese uh, electronic technology, where they rapidly iterated to the point where eventually people just catch on and go, no, I'll wait. That's fine. I don't need the first gen or anything. But Uh, when have we actually seen that happen with an iThing? You know, there are always just massive queues out the door. And it's like, it'll it'll sell like hotcakes. It it might be the thing that eventually pushes Apple to that one trillion market cap. The, uh, yeah, this might be the one. Who knows? Mm Mm-hmm. If it's not, you're right. They'll be the first trillion dollar valued company. Mm. But there but are this- there are lots of devices coming out, though. I mean, they got some hefty competition, don't they? I mean, yeah, in the of- same way as there's, there's lots of you know other smartphones and other tablets. But, no, I don't uh, think so. I think there's going to be a hundreds of wearables that that claim to do watchy things and you know stuff that uh, has all sorts of sensors, atmospheric sensors, and things like that. I, I I don't know. I think that a smartphone is an essential tool for life in the 21st century. But I but you know as far as wearable things, that's that's I think a smaller market and there's more options. The the, the ads will tell you it's essential. <laughs> you have well, to that's have one. true. <laughs> Very well, funny. So we should revisit this in a year. I think I think it'll take off like wildfire. But I guess that depends where they price it as well. Yep. Well, and these also it, how many of those. $10,000 watches, do they really expect to sell? Right. Who would wear it? You know, if somebody knows you've got something worth a small car around your wrist, do you remember when the iPod kept getting stolen? People got afraid of wearing their white earphones because it gave away they had an yeah. iPod and they got mugged? I do remember that. Well, that's, yeah. that seems weird now, doesn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. I, wonder what, I wonder if that's going to happen with the watch, too. Yeah, I guess by the same token, there are expensive watches around, and there are there are plenty of people you see wearing very nice watches that 
you know might cost that amount of money that that uh, that have been grabbed for years, right? I mean, this is what muggers do. I, I yeah, assume yeah. <laughs> I've never been on the receiving end. Right. Um, yeah, look, we'll we'll see. I, I just don't know about that ten grand one. I think it'd be very very niche because it's going to rotate so quickly because it's yeah. going to look old. I mean, something like a Rolex, right? I mean, you, you hand that down to your kids. Can you imagine? Yes. Yeah, twenty years from now, hey son, look, I've got this Apple Watch. A what? Huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Those> guys. <laughs> It uses this goofy protocol. You have to use uh, it with a well, and you have to use it with a phone that you may not be able to get anymore. Yeah. <laughs> true. Yeah, no, that's true. That's All true. right. So, I mean, we've sort of talked through the nice, scary parts of let's just go through the policies of how we identify pa- usernames and passwords, and obviously the encryption of all that. Like, never store a password. Store the hash. Da 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 da. Or even that is even the hash vulnerable. Like, how do you really protect all of this? Well, everything's vulnerable. It's just a question of degrees. And I think this is probably one of the things that we we need to kind of accept and not think that we're going to get to this sort of absolute state of security where it is absolutely indestructible sort of thing. It's, It's all a question of degrees. And the degree changes over time as well. So if, if we think back to just a couple of years ago, so think back to sort of Visual Studio 2012 uh, era. Uh, no, we'll go one earlier, 2010 era. We had the membership provider. And if you mm-hmm. use that to create a new solution, you would get passwords stored as a salted SHA-1 hash. Yep. And many people looked at that and they said, well, this is excellent because it has a salt, therefore it doesn't have a predictable hash for the same password, if you like, so we can't use rainbow tables to break that. You would have to go and recompute every single password or potential password against the salt in order to figure out what the actual password is. That must be really hard. And then GPUs started getting really, really, really fast. So I have got uh, an AMD R9290X in my machine at the moment, which is a consumer-level graphics card, a good one. Good one, yeah. I think it's about 30 billion MD5 hashes a second. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just a numbers game. It's all a numbers game. Now, that is within the GPU, basically just iterating through a character range. So you might say 6 to 10 uh, alphanumeric characters, right? Sure. Now, you can get a much lower hit rate if you feed in a password list because now you're I.O. bound by the data you're feeding into the GPU. But you can get a much higher success rate. So you can take one of these freaking massive password dictionaries, which are just populated with passwords from real systems, and then just start hashing those guys as fast as possible against assault and effectively seeing if it matches the stored hash. And if you get a hit, well, you go, okay, well, the password I fed in is, is the one that this guy used. You know, a while ago, and I, a while ago, I mean it, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I was teaching a class here at uh, Franklin's Net, and we had a guy come in, and he had this little thing that looked like a Wi-Fi, uh, whatchamacallit, I think it was, it was a Linksys router that he had modified to hack uh, passwords, or not, maybe it was Wi-Fi passwords, hack Wi-Fi passwords. And so he, and he said, I won't use it here, but I wanted to show you. And, um, yeah, he basically says he could let it run for anywhere between five minutes and 20 minutes and get into anybody's Wi-Fi. And I don't know, I mean, that was a long time ago. And I have this thing in the back of my head remembering it, but I don't know if the situation has, is any better today, if you can still do that. 
Well, it, it just gets harder for, uh, I'll, I'll rephrase it actually, it, it gets easier for the older protocols and then new protocols come along that make it harder. So this is you know, one of the reasons we moved on from WEP and we moved on to WPA and WPA2 in that these things can be brute forced if you can calculate these passwords fast enough. And the interesting thing about this is that it's not about breaking the algorithm, right? It's, it's not that MD5 is broken and you can reverse engineer a password. It's just that you can compute these hashes so quickly that you can effectively try and log on with the credentials. Yeah. Now, of course, this is all predicated, at least in, in the website and the logon sort of scenario, it's predicated on actually having those stored hashes. So you have to get them out of the system already. So you have to have something like a SQL injection vulnerability, right. which is absolutely everywhere, by the way. Yeah. Still. Uh, or, yeah, I know. It's, it's still number one on the OWASP top 10. It's still just day by day by day seeing huge amounts of stuff. And if you want to know how prevalent it is, and um, I'm trying to think of the right way, <laughs> the right way to put this, it's easy to see how many sites have this. So if you do a, a Google Doc search for something like uh, in URL uh, question mark dot ASP, no, actually in URL AS, dot ASP question mark ID. So look for like classic ASP that has an ID parameter. Because right. there's still a lot of classic ASP out there. And it was from a more innocent era where people weren't as worried about things like SQL injection. What was it again? In URL what? So I'll get it right this time. In URL, and then we, we just do a normal colon, uh -huh. ASP, question mark, ID equals. So this will look for classic ASP sites that have a parameter called ID. And inevitably, you will find a whole bunch of sites that will pass an ID, which will be an integer, and you open one of those up and you change that integer to a string and watch the internal SQL error bubble up to the surface. So basically, you are now able to change the execution of that SQL statement. And again, this is kind of gray area because it's, it, it, it leads you down a path that you probably do not want to go. <laughs> <laughs> and you may get a knock on the door if you go down that path. Wow. It's happened, happened to many people before. But you find these things really easily. In fact, I do this in, in a lot of my talks. Now I go, okay, look, let's do this. We'll just, we'll just search for this. Okay, here's the first result. Now we'll change that ID equals 10 to ID equals 10X. And oh, look at that. It's an internal SQL exception. Um, and so there you go. Now you can start passing arbitrary strings through to the SQL server and now you can start getting it to throw exceptions which include internal object structure or internal data. Wow, that's crazy. It's very, very crazy. The, the first one I tried, I got a Microsoft Jet database engineer. Now that's funny in and all of itself, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, syntax error in query expression, and there it is. There you go. There you go. Even and the thing is, then, yeah. So this this is the thing, and, and there, there are three things that make SQL injection still so bad, and one of them is discoverability because it's so easy to find it. The other one is ease of exploit, because you can now take that URL and you can plug it into free software that will extract that data out. So I often use a product called Havij, H-A-V-I-J, which I use. It's a little bit Mickey Mouse. It's very, very simple, but it's a little GUI interface. And you copy the URL and you paste it into the GUI and you click the play button and it says, here's all the tables that are in the database. Which one would you like? And you tick the table <laughs> and it says, here's all the columns that are in the table. Which ones would you like? And you go, okay, I have this one and I'll have the password one. And then you say, get data. 
And it is so easy that a lot of the talks I do, I'll get someone from the audience go, all right, who's never done a sequel injection attack before? You know, let's, let's upskill. <laughs> Have a go at this. And a few minutes later, they've got all of the data out of a, a particular site that I use for these demos. I even did it with my three-year-old. I recorded a video doing it with a three-year-old because it is just so simple if you can copy and paste a URL. Wow. Scary, Troy. Scary. <laughs> so that's how we uh, that's why those cryptographic storage mechanisms are important and right. we still get people say well look yeah but that's only of any value if you screw something else up right well yeah but this is the whole premise of defense in depth of yes. not having just this one single point of failure over on run as radio just did a show recently with paula janowski who's one of the best pen testers i've ever seen and she's talking about exactly this it's like I can always get in. It doesn't matter how careful you are. It's only degrees of difficulty. The question is, what happens next? And we really drilled into, because this is very much an IT show, on getting rid of real super user accounts. That You have a very granular administrator account level, so that once I... I don't want to break one account, and I've got your system. You want to have a very limited attack service for each thing. But this idea that you can build an impenetrable wall is false. Yep. Paul is awesome, and I bet nobody ever sees it coming either. <laughs> no, have you ever heard that story? Oh, the great one story. She, she pulled. Uh, she she pulled this on a customer. Showed up a half hour early. Asked the receptionist if she could use one of their computers to get on the internet to get some notes because she was nervous and completely breached the whole system from that guest account. So she opened the meeting with, "Here are all your administrator passwords." I thought she asked for the Wi-Fi password. Well, they they actually put her on a machine that was plugged into the network. Okay, that's. That's, it's a little easier to, you know, here, just sit down at this machine, but yeah. behave, you know. <laughs> but if you get a public Wi-Fi, I, I heard it was a public Wi-Fi, mm. you know, or just our Wi-Fi. Here's the password. I imagine she could do that, too. She's really good at what she does. Yeah. But, and yeah, but you don't see her coming. No. Trust is not a security control. Right. No. Yes. And be care more careful next time is not a mitigation. <laughs> So, you know, speaking of account management, one of, the, one of the other things that I see a bit, which uh, I, I find equal parts hilarious and scary, and I'm, I'm sure most listeners won't do this, but it, it's just interesting to see the sort of things people do. Uh, and this is around the implementations of the Remember Me feature. Uh, so, you know, the little checkbox which says, hey, we're going to make sure you can come back tomorrow or next month or whenever it is and, and still be logged in. Right. And this, again, is one of these sort of trade-offs, right? So clearly long-running sessions and long-running sort of logged-in sessions are going to pose somewhat of a risk. But, hey, it's nice to be able to come back to Stack Overflow tomorrow and I'm, I'm still logged in. Right. But I've seen it done in a really unusual way a few times. And, in fact, I wrote something uh, a little while back about Black & Decker who have now fixed this, so I can mention this. And what they did is that if you ticked that box, they would store – your password in a cookie in the browser. Wow. <laughs> but on your machine. It, well, no, it's okay, though. They base 64 encoded it. <laughs> oh, wow. Awesome. <laughs> but see, this was the funny thing because a lot of people would look at that. And actually, I've got another base 64 story I'll come back to. But a lot of people would look at that and they go, okay, well, this is obfuscated data. They've encrypted it. They've done something funky. But they base 64 encoded. Now, what was even worse is that the cookie was not flagged as secure, so it would be sent over an HTTP connection. Right. But it was also not flagged as HTTP only. So if you had any sort of cross-site scripting risk, that cookie could be retrieved by the browser. 
Nice. So you could send someone a link with, say, a reflected XSS uh, payload in the URL. They'd click on the link and their password would end up being sent externally to someone else. And I've seen this happen many, many times with the Remember Me feature. Now, I've got another one in that same blog post where they actually put the username and the password together in the one field and they just semicolon delimited it. Uh, and, you know, this is how they do it. So it's not really a Remember Me per se. It's here's my credentials, manually log me, or I guess automatically log me in again right. when I come back to the site. But it's, it's actually doing the login process again. Man. And, you know, again, a password manager will do your auto logins for you. Yeah, well, that, and this is what's beautiful about it as well. It's, I mean, most of them are just a, a keystroke, right? That's uh, a key combination. Yep. Hmm. Well, I, I so use LastPass literally with a machine that has LastPass set up correctly, and I'm and I'm, you know, logged into LastPass. When I hit the site, it just fills in the fields. You don't yeah. do anything else. And that's the way it should be. And I think, look, there are proponents or rather opponents against password managers and they say, oh, you, you, you know, you're putting all your eggs in one basket and, and so on and so forth. And yep. it's really that hard to remember a password. But it's about more than that. It, it is a real usability upside when yes. you have a good password manager. And even integration into iOS. So I use 1Password and now when I go to a website in iOS in Safari, I can hit the little up arrow and choose one password, authenticate with Touch ID, and it will fill in the credentials on that page and I'll click the button and go. And particularly on something like a mobile device where it is a pain in the backside to type, that makes life really, really easy. Oh, yeah. But just keeping track of, of uh, like, I want this password changed every 90 days and it'll remind me, this, you know, this password's just old now. You know who Kevin Kelly is from Wired Magazine and was one of the original hippies of this business um he was asked i think it was on uh, freakonomics by uh stephen dubner what is password you know how he manages passwords fascinating he says he has an algorithm that takes into account the url but it's also algorithmic so anybody who knows how to generate the password could do it like he could give the algorithm to his secretary and they, that she could do it but but it's all it's all based on the URL, and I thought that was really brilliant. I, I find that interesting. I know it works for some people, and a, a lot of people said, "Look, I use mechanisms like I take the site name, and then I multiply by two, and I carry the one, and I add the dog's name, and whatever yeah, right. it is." Yeah. And then I go, "Okay, that's great." Now, when you got to log on to your bank, and they force you to use a four-digit PIN, how do you do it then? Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, uh, you have yeah. to have a separate. Uh, you have to cover all the bases. Yeah, and, and changing them is the other thing. And then you have scenarios like we are just talking about with Microsoft. It's like, well, you want to use passphrases, that's great, but keep it under 16 characters. And then this other site won't let you use spaces or quotes, <laughs> so you yep. can't use that there. Yeah. It's an unsolved problem. Yeah, it is. There, we were talking on the show one time about, and I can't remember who we were talking to, Richard, but it was about those uh, challenge questions that you get, you know, What's your mother's maiden name? What's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? And this guy said, I, I, I make it easy for myself. Every answer is chocolate. Nice. You know? <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's brilliant. And then I, you know, I tried, of course, it wasn't chocolate, but I tried it. And, you know, the first site that I came to was like, oh, they have to be different. You know, every answer can't be chocolate. It's like, shh, beep, you know, damn. Ah. But, hey, that's where the password manager comes in again. Just auto-generate the, the, the response. It's not going to make yeah. any sense, but you can go back store to the password all those manager too. and retrieve it. 
Yeah, that's, that's right. So what's your, what's your favorite password manager? I know Richard was talking about his. Well, I mean, mine comes back again to password managers. So, so my favorite approach is I use one uh, password and I auto-generate everything. Yeah. And the, 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 where it sort of falls down just a little bit is you might have a really enthusiastically long password and then you've got to go, okay, but did this site just truncate that? Right. So did, did it actually just strip it down? It did it had a, a max length on the text box? And certainly some of them can pick that up as well. Uh, or, or was there some JavaScript that tried to, you know, look at the length of the field and then give me an alert when I get to a certain limit? Right. So then this is the problem because we really don't have sort of one standard approach to implementing even just the UI control mm-hmm. for the password, yet we're trying to have tools like LastPass and 1Password which can work consistently across all of them. Yeah, that's the challenge. I, I, you're a one-pass guy. I'm a last-pass guy. I think they're the two big ones. Yeah, absolutely. No, they're, they're very good ones. That, hey, let me give you one more anecdote, and this was around Base64 because I did say before I'd come back yes. to it. So, what, yeah, one of the things that we, I'm really conscious of is that there is a lot of guidance out there on the internet, and, and as we know, often a lot of this guidance is, is not particularly good. No. And I wrote something a little while ago where I, I grabbed a few responses from a Stack Overflow question, which was eventually deleted. But the question was, how do I store my passwords securely? So how do I encrypt them? And really, encryption is not what we want. But be that as it may, it was a reasonable question. And the first answer explained how to use Base64. And it got <laughs> lots of upvotes. Oh, boy. The next answer was what you do, and this is the sneaky thing, right? So you take each character and you get the ASCII value and you increment it by five. <laughs> and then you store that. Oh, what and then the, then the third answer, I kid you not, this is on my blog. Crazy. On the third answer, it was you do that, but then you increment it by 13. So this is rot 13, right? Character rotation 13. And that's how you store it. And I, I guess the point of that story is just to be really, really cautious about advice like this around how to implement security controls because things like that are absolutely useless. And fortunately, Stack Overflow, stuff sort of floats to the bottom or gets moderated, but there's a lot of content out there on the web where that's not the case and it stands the test of time. And the worst thing is then you see all the comments. Thank you so much. This has been really helpful. This is awesome. And you just go, oh, my God. And these people, you know, (laughs) and their email addresses are right there too, right? So Uh, happily running off in the wrong direction. Be careful where you get your advice from. Yes, especially when it comes to security. It takes real experts. Speaking of that, haven't you changed jobs? <laughs> well, that, that is the thing. This was one of the uh, – I might as well say it here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do a blog post later on. But, yeah, so after uh, what will be 14 years, I am leaving Pfizer now. And uh, oh, I'm wow. going to write some detail on, uh, on why and, and what I'm doing. But you'll be seeing a, a whole lot more of me around the world as I have time to, to go and do the things I love. Awesome. Uh, and also be seeing a whole lot more of me on plural side as well, because this is now no longer just going to be sort of 1 a.m. affairs or weekend affairs. So uh, there's going to be a lot coming down the pipeline there. And in fact, I'm off to Utah next week to see those guys. So by the time awesome. this goes out. So all oh, these cool oh. sites, a safer word, if I, have I been pwned, so forth. That's just been your nighttime gig. Oh, yeah. No, this, I've been part-timing it. So now yeah. I can actually take it seriously. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit terrified. So. <laughs> I'm terrified. <laughs> yeah. Well, Troy, that's a show. All right. It was awesome, guys. A pleasure as always. Thank you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and I wasn't too scared this time. Yeah, so that's good. I'll I'll try harder next time. All right, yeah, you do that. (laughs) All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a